Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on the New Books Network's History Channel with Professor of Edmund S. Morgan Professor of History at Yale University, Mark Peterson. He, earlier this year, published his book, The City-State of Boston, The Rise and Fall of an Atlantic Power, 1630 to 1865. Welcome, Professor Peterson, to the show. Thank you very much. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about the cover of the, of the book? Yes, uh, I'm very happy with the cover. It's an image uh, made by Paul Revere in 1768, depicting the arrival and uh, disembarkation of British troops uh, that were sent in to try to enforce order in the city in the wake of the riots from the summer of 1768, uh, in which uh, attempts to prevent the enforcement of the uh, customs duties under the Townsend Acts uh, led to a decision by the Crown that that the military was needed to, to enforce the act in Boston. And so it's uh, an image of Boston facing the Atlantic world uh, and the uh, struggle between the city and the imperial powers uh, over how the city conducted its business in that world. And in that sense, it's kind of critical to a lot of the themes of the book and, and, and a, just a brilliant illustration of, of the Atlantic facing city as well. What prompted you to study the early history of Boston as a city-state, and what do you mean by city-state? Well, in one sense, the answer is in the archives themselves. That is, I spent many years uh, reading the historical documents from early Boston, and one of the things I noticed was how, again and again, uh, an immense range of different kinds of people talked about Boston... Massachusetts and New England as if it were a single entity with Boston as its center. So for instance, um, in the 1660s, after the restoration of Charles II to the crown, after the decade or so of rule by parliament, he uh, sent investigators to New England who were primarily searching for some of the regicide judges who had sentenced his father to death back in 1649 and who had uh, fled from justice after the restoration. And when these commissioners report back uh, in their communication to, to Charles, they frequently referred to everyone they met in New England who they suspected of being part of this uh, conspiracy to hide the regicides, they referred to them as the Bostoners, right? That that was the word for, regardless of whether they lived in New Haven or Hartford or whatever, they were Bostoners. Um, similarly, during the Revolutionary War, when um, French naval troops are stationed in Boston for a good part of the war, it becomes for a while the, the base of the French Navy's operations in the war. Uh, in the correspondence and in the reports that the French officers write about their experience, they keep referring to l'état de Boston, the, the state of Boston. 
Uh, and I could go on with many examples of this, and the book does, but it was uh, there in the archives, this understanding that Boston in New England was a state unto itself, that it had the kind of autonomy that we associate with the city-states of the ancient world or the uh, uh, medieval, early modern Mediterranean. Um, and uh, in that sense, I wanted to tell the story of Boston as one of a form of polity, a, a, an autonomous polity in which a, a city develops its own hinterland and that city plus hinterland together form a kind of state. Um, this was a kind of state that before around 1800 was incredibly common throughout the world. And then with the rise of the consolidated nation state or empire state, um, especially in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, is a form of polity that has largely disappeared from the modern world. And so this seemed to me to be an opportunity not only to think through Boston and New England's history in a different way, but to tell a portion of a really important story in world history, um, especially I think now at a time when uh, the nation state itself as a form is uh, showing serious problems, is uh, reverting yet again to the kind of uh, toxic nationalism that was uh, horrifically problematic in the 20th century. I, there's a, a, a political edge to this book in the sense that uh, I think reconsidering the virtues and the defects as well of the city-state form is something that could be very useful to us going forward. What do you mean by political economy, and how was the political economy of 17th century Boston different from, and I guess the same as, colonial plantations across the Atlantic world? If possible, uh, please try to address uh, the early triangle trade between Boston, Bilbao, and London, the transition from a political economy of wampum, wampum and fur to a West Indies trade in a variety of provisions, and the, the, the Winthrop uh, Downing correspondence on chattel slavery. Well, good. I'm glad you asked that because uh, this is an important part of what I'm trying to do in the book. Um, I would argue that one of the outcomes of the dominance of the nation state model in the 19th century was the separation, and I would argue an artificial separation between the world of politics and the world of economics. In, in a sense, uh, from the 19th century forward, we've been encouraged to think that uh, economy is something that stands alone of and separate from the way states function and, and politics work. No one assumed that uh, before 1800. And uh, I actually myself think it's a mistake to make that assumption. And so at the center of this book is an attempt to think about political economy. And so the definition that I use for this is a kind of uh, simple and straightforward one. It's the one that Adam Smith offered in Wealth of Nations, but he, he's by no means the only person to think this way. And basically what Smith said in Wealth of Nations was that political economy uh, has, has two parts. Uh, on the one hand, it's the attempt uh, supported by the state to provide a plentiful revenue or subsistence for the people. Uh, that's one part. In other words, making sure that the, the population, the, the subjects of a state are uh, reasonably well off. And then secondly, uh, it's the attempt to supply the state or the Commonwealth itself with a revenue sufficient for the public services or the public purposes of the state. And so naturally that uh, leads to the question of, well, what are the 
the public services of the state? What is it that's the, the, the purpose of a state beyond making sure that its own people are, are reasonably well off? And that's a, a particularly interesting question for the colonial project, um, for, for the development of the European colonies in the New World. Many of them were understood to have a political economy that was essentially an extension of the home country, of the metropolis. And whether you're talking about the Spanish colonies in the Americas, Britain, France, even the Dutch colonies, in a way, a lot of the historical focus has been on the ways in which colonies sort of fed the interests of the home country. And if you look across the British colonies in the Americas, the West Indies, uh, the North American continent, you can see how a lot of them develop very much in that model. The West Indian islands largely become producers of sugar for the home country, a product that couldn't be produced in Britain. Uh, in Virginia, it's tobacco uh, uh, forming a similar function. And part of what's interesting about the history of Boston is that it develops its own set of political economy interests and, and shapes a political economy that is in some ways distinctive from and in some ways in competition with that of England or of Britain. Now, it doesn't set out to do this. Uh, in its origins uh, and in the first decades of colonization, the founders of Boston would have been overjoyed if they had found something of great value that simply could have fed the English economy and sustained uh, their own ability to, to keep their colony going. So, for instance, in the first decades of settlement, a tremendous amount of searching for gold and silver is part of uh, the experience of early uh, Boston and New England. But as we know, they don't find any. It doesn't mean that they didn't try or weren't thinking about that model that had been so clearly at the heart of Spain's success. And the, the central feature that any reader needs to understand uh, about these colonial economies developing in the age of sailing ships is that for them to thrive economically beyond simple subsistence, the ability to, to grow their own food and, and feed themselves, um, any of these colonies had to find some kind of commodity that would make it worthwhile for merchants to come and go there. And the problem there is that the very great expense of long-distance shipping in the age of sail, that is the need to you know, build these expensive ships, outfit them, and above all, to supply them with crews and feed and clothe and pay the crews for these voyages that could take months at a time, that was a very high level of investment. And so for that kind of investment to pay off, you had to find a commodity that could sell for a high enough price back in the home country to make it worthwhile. And the problem that uh, early New Englanders pretty quickly discovered was that the, there was very little along those lines that they could produce that anyone back in, in London and in England wanted to buy. Um, and, and so the early decades of Boston's history are shaped by looking for some commodity that will fulfill that function or for some alternative method of getting merchant ships to come to Boston and to supply them with the imported goods um, necessary for them to have a colony that was more than just a kind of uh, set of subsistence hermits. So it's in that context that um, one of the things that they try to do is uh, use the, their ability to catch fish off the great fishing banks of New England. 
problem there was that uh, the English too are a great fishing nation, a, a maritime nation, and so there was no great need from the English for that. But what the Boston's merchants discovered very early in the 1630s was that the very high demand in Mediterranean countries and Spain in particular meant that they could start shipping their, their salted cod to Bilbao in northern Spain, especially for the Lenten season, um, which happens in the springtime. And there would be a demand there for it because the re religious restrictions meant that you couldn't eat meat during this time. And so there was a very high demand for fish. And then they could, uh, in Bilbao, pick up the kind of high-grade wool that London merchants in particular wanted to import. So they found a little niche in the system that gave them a competitive advantage over uh, English merchants. They would be bringing their ships across the sea filled with fish uh, rather than uh, sending empty voyages to Bilbao and bringing them back to London. And that difference was the beginnings, the very earliest glimmerings of the kind of Atlantic economy uh, that the uh, Boston merchants are able to develop. Uh, in that sense, uh, the other great prospect um, that New England offered was the kinds of furs that Indian hunters uh, could acquire for English merchants. Uh, beaver was incredibly popular and in high demand in Europe. And again, this was something that New Englanders imagined might be their version of tobacco or sugar. But the, the problem with fur was that unlike uh, these other uh, agricultural commodities, supply was very limited. And the more that the New England merchants encouraged Indians to hunt and to overhunt for furs, the fewer and fewer animals there were left in the woodlands to supply it. In particular, the, the monetary form that um, the New England merchants used, or I should say really developed in order to encourage Indians to hunt for beaver and other kinds of fur, was the transformation of, of wampum or wampum pig, um, which had been a form of a kind of symbolic or diplomatic currency used by New England Indians uh, before the arrival of European colonists. And what the, um, the colonists, first the Dutch and uh, the region around New York, and then later the English in New England did was to take a, a commodity, wampum, which were strings or, or belts made out of shells, shells that were found along Long Island Sound and manufactured into these beads. Um, they, they, they transformed this. They saw Indians using these strings or belts of wampum in making diplomatic or um, uh, ceremonial exchanges between tribes, between uh, villages and the like, and failed to realize that the wampum was not an equivalent of money as they understood it, money being something that anyone who got their hands on it could use, but rather um, wampum among Indians had traditionally been something that only, you know, men or women who were heads of a village or a clan who were had the kind of political power to make diplomatic or uh, um, ceremonial relations with other groups were entitled to use. What the colonists do is to begin to use wampum as if it were money, in a sense to bring wampum to places where it hadn't been used before, to start making uh, direct calculated relationships between wampum and furs. And so they, in effect, monetized wampum for a period of some years, starting in the 1630s, in order to accelerate the fur trade, to give incentive to Indians to go out and hunt more furs than they had ever done before.
And the effect of this uh, uh, combination of the monetization of wampum and the attempt to commercialize fur hunting meant that for a while there, New England merchants were able to get their hands on a lot of furs and, and create the illusion that this was going to be the basis of their economy. But very rapidly, the overhunting and the increased uh, demand for and supply of wampum meant that you could get fewer and fewer furs for more and more wampum. And, and finally, this whole system collapsed. Uh, the, the, the wampum itself was demonetized. The fur uh, species were wiped out. And this kind of left Boston high and dry, looking for some new way to, to, to follow the prescriptions that Adam Smith had, well, would later lay out for, for a political economy, looking for something that would provide a plentiful subsistence for the people and the public services for the state. Can you also address uh, really quickly the correspondence over slavery? Oh, yes. So in the wake of uh, Wampum's uh, collapse, which happens in the 1640s, one of the things that Boston's merchants, the people who are starting to trade in the Atlantic world, become aware of is that in the West Indies, the real explosion in the sugar economy is taking place in islands like Barbados and uh, um, St. Kitts and uh, the like. And in fact, uh, at least one of the early graduates of Harvard College, uh, a young man named George Downing, who later goes on to be a major figure in uh, London politics. In fact, Downing Street, where the prime minister's residence is located, is named after him. Um, George Downing, uh, on a return trip to England, passes through the West Indies and sees what's going on there and that the uh, landowners there are importing uh, enslaved Africans by the thousands and putting them to work in building sugar plantations uh, and producing this commodity that sells for a very high price in London. So he actually writes back to his cousin, uh, the younger John Winthrop, who would become uh, the first governor of Connecticut, and says, you know, look, you ought to do this in New England too. Uh, they're incredibly uh, plentiful enslaved Africans. You can buy them from the Portuguese or the Dutch. You put them to work and uh, they'll make your economy very profitable. And at the same time, George Downing's father, whose name was Emmanuel Downing, who was a, a major investor in the Mass Bay Company and, and living in, uh, in Ipswich in New England, writes to the senior John Winthrop in Boston, who's the governor of Massachusetts, and essentially says the same thing. He argues that, um, you know, it's very difficult at this time in the 1640s because the English Civil Wars have broken out and therefore Puritan-minded uh, potential colonists now do not want to leave England. They want to stay in England where the action is. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to find sufficient workers uh, in the New England economy. So Emmanuel Downing, too, writes to uh, the elder John Winthrop and says, we ought to do this. You know, we should go to war with Indian peoples. And there were any number of potential conflicts uh, at the time that Downing was thinking about capture Indian warriors, ship them out into the West Indies or to Spain or uh, the Azores as slaves, and in return, buy African slaves, bring them to, to uh, New England, and as he puts it, they will do all our business. And he claims that everybody knows you can keep uh, 20 Moors, that's the word he used, but he means Africans, for the same cost as one English servant. 
So uh, there certainly are people in New England who are thinking about this idea of developing an economy uh, in Boston and New England that will be similar to that that's developing in the West Indies. It's not what happens. Yeah, that we don't know what either uh, the younger or the elder John Winthrop wrote in response to this. That part of the correspondence doesn't survive. But what we do know is that this is exactly the moment when instead of turning towards uh, African slavery on a massive scale in New England, instead, the merchants in Boston turn towards using New England's resources grown by the English farmers there and shipping them to the West Indies, uh, where the plantation owners there are willing to buy the fish and the grain and the meat products that you can raise in New England. So this is really an incredibly important moment because the kind of economy that Boston will have really for almost the next two centuries is put in place right here and, and is a result of a decision, we don't fully know the terms of it, not to make New England a uh, slave society directly, but to make it into a society that will furnish the goods that are needed in the slave societies of the West Indies. How and why did Woodland Algonquin diplomacy... New Haven expansion, privateer ventures, and the New England Confederation all culminate in Boston's sudden emergence by 1643. Well, okay, so we're talking about the same time period here. And part of the point that I'm trying to make is that um, it was in no way inevitable that Boston and Massachusetts would be the principal leader of the Puritan movement's expansion into the Atlantic world. And the reason for that is that there were lots of different colonial projects at the time, many of them led by uh, Puritan-minded figures. For instance, um, at the very same time that Boston and Massachusetts are founded, a group of noblemen uh, of Puritan inclinations are in the process of forming uh, an island colony in the Caribbean known as Providence Island. And um, the historian Karin Kupperman has written a great book about this. the idea there was that it would not only become a profitable colony and a refuge for Puritans, but it would also be a place from which uh, Spanish America could readily be attacked and, and uh, gains for England in geopolitics could be made from there. Compared to that, Boston, Massachusetts seemed kind of a backwater in many ways. It was far from the heart of uh, the American colonies. It was thought to be a pretty poor, cold place and the like. Um, Similarly, there were Puritan influences going on in Bermuda at the time. Puritans are starting to move to Virginia in the 1630s and 40s. So it wasn't really clear that that, that the Boston uh, colonization project would would become the kind of uh, central place that it was. And even in New England itself, um, there are colonial projects developing in New Haven, where I am now. That is, uh, London merchants thought that might be a better place uh, for for a major port. Um, and there were various English colonial projects going on in New Hampshire and Maine at the time. So what I argue in the book is that a series of events that take place in the 1630s and 1640s are critical for Boston's emergence as the center of the Puritan Atlantic in a way that wasn't predictable in advance. One of them is the failure of that Providence Island colony. It was wiped out by the Spanish around 1640, and even before that, it was failing for lack of uh, sufficient colonization and and, uh, land ownership rights. Um, But in the meantime, in New England, 
Boston's leaders are taking advantage of a series of different situations that help them to consolidate their power over the whole region. One of them, it, you referred to it as woodland Algonquian diplomacy, but it's more than diplomacy too. Some of it is quite brutal warfare in which uh, Boston's leadership uh, brings the new Connecticut colony together in the late 1630s to attack and destroy the Pequot Indian settlements uh, along the coast of Long Island Sound, in large part because that was the prime location for acquiring the shells from which wampum was produced. Um, but they continue to, to conduct different kinds of diplomatic relationships with the Indians of New England, which collectively um, demonstrate that Boston is the most powerful center in the region, and that's the place where these kinds of alliances are being formed. Similarly, when the town of New Haven is colonized in the late 1630s, 1638, 39, they uh, immediately uh, are involved in conflicts with their neighbors to the west, the, the Dutch colony at New Amsterdam. And here too, rather than allowing the New Haveners to work things out with the Dutch, Bostonians step in. They correspond with Peter Stuyvesant in, in New Netherland. They... Uh, they take control of the diplomatic situation. They try to restrain the most uh, sort of violent and expansionist tendencies of the New Haveners and make it clear that if you want to deal with the Puritan colonies in New England, that Boston is the place that you have to go. Um, similarly, as uh, uh, English privateers, some of them working out of Boston and New England are arriving uh, in the northern colonies with uh, silver that they've managed by hook or by crook to steal from the Spanish or others, uh, Boston becomes a principal place where the, the, the trade, the, if you want to call it money laundering, takes place there. And this helps uh, expand Boston's economy and, and, and the ability of the New England merchants operating out of Boston to gain access to the West Indies. And then finally, I, I would argue that the culminating event of all of this happens in 1643, when Boston's leadership brings in these new colonial ventures that are happening at New Haven and at Hartford and the older colony at Plymouth into a formal confederation in which these four colonies uh, form uh, a kind of league of common friendship and defense in which they pledge their resources to defend each other against the Dutch, against the French to the north, against uh, any possible Indian attacks or conflicts. And so in this, I, I see part of uh, Boston's leadership and the development of its sort of New England hinterland city-state complex. This confederation forming process is very much the kind of thing that's characteristic of other city-states in history, whether you're talking about ancient Greece and the Amphictyonic League among the colonies there, or the Hanseatic League of the trading cities of Northern Europe in the early modern period. Um, and, and so with Boston's increasing dominance of all of these different kinds of relationships, economic and political um, and even cultural relationships, uh, you see it begin to emerge as the most important node in all of the Puritan Atlantic world in a way that had not at all been clear when it was founded in 1630 and certainly hadn't been clear in 1640 when it looked to be on the verge of collapse. What series of events, including the Potosi Silver Recall, culminated in the 1652 to 82, approximately, minting of debased, but trusted, I guess, kind of shillings for the New England Confederation? Mm -hmm. 
In addition, how did access to a steady money supply allow Mintmaster John Hall to build his business before and after King Philip's War? Well, these are important questions to the book. And one of the things I'm trying to do uh, in the book is to draw attention to how uh, how critical and how difficult the problem of money is to colonial economies generally and to Boston and New England in particular. So it's generally the case, uh, and, and certainly was the case in Britain's North American colonies, that um, they tended not to see or to be able to keep very much in the way of good silver money, whether this would be English money, money pounds and shillings and the like, or Spanish money, which was uh, frankly much more plentiful in the Atlantic world because of the huge amounts of silver that are being produced in Mexico and Peru at the time. So effectively, in a colony like Virginia that was devoted to a single commodity of tobacco, Tobacco itself kind of became money, and people were, were every year the colony would peg, based on the, the, the quality of the crop that year, the value of, of X number of pounds of tobacco is equal to so many pounds, shillings, and pence. And the thing is, as I said before, New England didn't really have any high-value commodity like that that you could send directly to England in return for the kinds of goods that you would need. Virginia planters had no worries about that because tobacco was so valuable, English merchants would simply arrive in the rivers of Virginia and in return for tobacco, sell them what they needed, everything from uh, you know, clothing um, for the rich planters, fineries, uh, for the poorer ones, tools and the like. Uh, that wasn't a problem. For New England, the problem was how to engage in an Atlantic economy in which to buy and sell the high-value goods you needed to have silver, whether it was Spanish or English, whereas New England didn't really produce anything of very high value. So the wampum experiment I talked about a little bit earlier was an early attempt to deal with this, but one of the chief problems here is that nobody outside of New England wanted wampum as a currency. This meant that on the whole, uh, the, the region was short of it, and so starting around the time that the uh, the ability of Boston to supply the West Indian planters with foodstuffs and the like starts to develop in the middle of the 1640s, the leaders of Massachusetts turn their heads to this again. Now, the one potential for silver coming into England does come from this West Indian trade, where uh, sometimes illegally by way of privateering and pirates and the like, and sometimes by legitimate trade with the uh, the, silver, the sugar producers of the West Indies, the, the merchants do come back with some Spanish silver in their holds. What throws a monkey wrench into the whole business was that right at this time, right about 1648, it starts to become well known in the Atlantic world that the major silver producer in all of uh, Spanish America, the, the giant Cerro Rico, the, the, the silver, the rich mountain at Potosi in Peru, uh, was having a kind of a crisis. It was discovered that the dozen or so silver merchants who had the contracts for producing the Spanish coins, the, the eight reales pieces, had been systematically uh, essentially cheating the Spanish government by producing debased coins. They were supposed to have uh, eight 
pesos or, or, or eight reales, I should say, uh, worth of silver in each of these coins. And instead, uh, they seem to be somewhere at around six reales of silver and the rest of them base metals. But it was very inconsistent and it had all been done illegally. And so there was this sense of crisis in the Atlantic world's money supply that you couldn't trust uh, a Spanish uh, eight reales piece to be worth what it was supposed to be. So in this context, the government of Massachusetts asked one of the very few, maybe the only person in the colony who had the skills to do this, to see whether he would be willing to, to test Spanish money for value. His name was John Hull. Uh, he had been trained as a silversmith. Uh, his family had come to New England in the 1630s, and he had moved to Boston to start a mercantile business. And when Hull was asked about this, he initially declined. What they wanted him to do was to simply weigh each Spanish coin, and if it was up to its proclaimed value, to, to stamp it with a, a, a kind of seal that would say, yes, this is good money. And Hull was unwilling to do this because it was, in a sense, a request by the government for him to do a lot of work without getting really paid anything for it. And so the general court, the government, went back and thought things through again and, and came up with a, uh, a new suggestion. And I should say right up front, a really radical suggestion politically. And the suggestion was that John Hull would, instead of simply weighing and stamping coins, he would take them melt them down and produce a whole new currency, a New England shilling. Now, the reason that this was so radical was that traditionally the uh, power to utter currency, to issue coins, was a royal prerogative. And Massachusetts was a colony that had been you know, granted its charter by the crown. Uh, and so to start issuing its own high-grade silver coinage was a, a kind of species of treason, of les majestes. And so what makes it thinkable at this time in 1652 is that this is a time that, when there is no king, right? In 1649, Charles I had been executed, and Parliament is ruling England, and in fact, Parliament is issuing its own uh, silver coinage without any, you know, royal face on it or anything the like. And so I think this helps Massachusetts think that it can get away with doing this. And so what they do is to come up with an incredibly clever plan for generating a currency that will retain its value in New England and that will also stay in New England. Now, you referred to it as, as debased coinage, but that's not exactly right. The, the, the Spanish coinage was debased because it was you know, illegally being issued at less than its uh, supposed full value in silver. And what the Massachusetts Mint under Hull's direction does is to issue coins that are called a shilling, but that don't weigh as much as an English shilling in silver. Instead, they weigh about three quarters of that weight. But it's not done secretly or deceptively. It's, it's openly proclaimed that this will pass as a shilling in New England. It'll be the equivalent of an English shilling, which you almost never saw in New England to begin with. But for the very reason that everyone knows that it's not the full weight of an English shilling, but only three quarters, the idea is that they'll stay in New England, that they will become the circulating currency of that region for which Boston is the head, but that outside of New England, no one is going to want these things because no one in England would accept this as a shilling. Everyone would know it wasn't the equivalent of it. 
Now, of course, it would have been possible to export them and then to melt them down in England and turn them into actual shillings or to use them in other places. But that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And in addition, uh, the Massachusetts General Court passes laws saying you can't send these out of New England. And in fact, they will search ships to make sure that that isn't happening. So effectively, for this 30, almost 40 year period, starting in 1652, Massachusetts is taking on one of the qualities of an independent state and doing so in order to have a circulating currency that will encourage ordinary farmers, fishermen and the like to produce not just enough goods to feed themselves, but excess products that they can sell, that the merchants can sell overseas, knowing that if they're paid in these kinds of shillings, they can use them in New England to buy whatever they want from New England's merchants. And so it's actually quite uh, an innovative and advanced way of thinking about money and its purposes, and it plays a hugely important role in those two political economy functions that I mentioned earlier of supplying the people with a public revenue, but also supplying the state with the capacity to perform the functions that it thinks is necessary. How and why did Massachusetts attempt to annex northeastern Maine settlements, including Ligonia, until the 1685 charter revocation? Also, if possible, uh, if you can answer this, how and why did Boston again and again engage in so-called rack expeditions for silver and turn to coinage for crown tribute until that transition to trust and bills of credit? Well, this follows directly on... uh the argument for why the coinage that the Massachusetts Mint is issuing is is so important, not just for the domestic economy of the region to, to supply the people with uh, sufficient revenue, but, but to supply the state with what it needs to conduct its purposes. Um, the, the region to the south of Massachusetts, what becomes New Haven uh, and uh, Connecticut and uh, Plymouth, and to a certain extent, Rhode Island as well, although it's, Rhode Island is always something of an odd exception. But you can generally say that all of those regions to the south were colonized out of Boston, out of the Massachusetts project, and were in one way or another very devoted to the Puritan religious culture that the founders of Boston were, were, were tremendously uh, dedicated to sustaining. To the north and east of Boston and Massachusetts, from the Merrimack River northward and eastward, the first English colonies in that region had, on the whole, very little to do with uh, Boston's founders with the Puritan movement generally. The leading figure in Maine was this man by the name of uh, Ferdinando Georges, Sir Ferdinando. And uh, he was a, a royalist. He was a courtier to the Stuart monarchs, um, hostile to Puritans in the Puritan movement. And he actually kind of envisioned this northeastern region, what becomes Maine, as a place where something like a, a, a feudal restoration would take place. He was given an enormous grant in this region, and he was made the head of the Council for New England, which was the sort of administrative group under the crown that was supposed to be responsible for uh, giving out uh, land endowments in the region and getting colonization projects going. 
So George has had this dream of creating a colony, which he somewhat uh, egotistically referred to as Georgiana after himself, <laughs> uh, in which he imagined uh, around where the, the town of York, Maine is today, that there would be a, a central city to his colony, that it would be a major settlement, that it would have a Church of England cathedral, um, a kind of elaborate system of land grants with him at the top of the pyramid and the like. The problem was that he, he had a great deal of difficulty finding colonists who would accept his terms and go there. So that although the, the Puritan movement uh, gives uh, Boston and Massachusetts uh, the uh, sort of intense devotion that leads to their moving some 20,000 colonists across the sea in the 1630s, you can measure uh, the colonization of Maine under George's in the dozens of people. And essentially, as a a political figure, he gets distracted by all kinds of other political issues as a as a courtier to the crown at the time, and and turns over the colonization of this region to one or another small uh, groups of investors who try one or another colony. They don't have much resources. They don't have uh, uh, a great deal of backing, and so these little colonies that develop along the coast of what's now New Hampshire and Maine tend to flounder. And what Massachusetts does in the 1640s, 50s, 60s, and onward is to see this as an opportunity. And so as many of these small, uh, not very successful colonies are, are floundering along, Massachusetts sends traders and uh, representatives of the state up there and eventually persuades many of these that they'll be better off if they uh, swear allegiance to Massachusetts Bay, if they accept the court system that Massachusetts has been offering to, to them as a way to settle their disputes and become uh, part of the, the, the Massachusetts project. Um, the ability of Massachusetts uh, and its resources to turn out troops and defend these colonies during the Indian Wars of the 1670s is a large part of this. The problem that uh, Boston faces in this regard is that they have the resources and the capacity to include these settlements in their uh, general hegemony over the region, but what they don't have is legal title to it. And this is where uh, some of the experiments in silver and monetary supply come in handy. Uh, after the restoration of Charles II in 1660, um, the uh, uh, crown is trying to scale back Massachusetts' authority and its power, and Massachusetts is trying to continue to extend it over regions like this. And so one of the things that Massachusetts does is to begin to send agents to London to lobby in Whitehall to see whether um, through diplomacy and through the right application of funding, they can actually gain title over the Northeastern region. And in the process of this, John Hull writes a series of really interesting correspondence to some of these uh, agents of the colony, essentially saying that whatever money they need, and he doesn't spell this out, but he really means bribery and, and, and the like, to convince Whitehall agents to give the title to the main region over to Boston, he's ready to supply it, you know, by virtue of his credit from uh, his work as a successful merchant in uh, his London contacts and through the kind of access to coinage that he has, he can supply them with whatever they need. And so this is one of the payoffs of the development of Boston's uh, economic hegemony, hegemony over the region. That is, 
when push comes to shove, uh, the uh, Bostonians get their way and they gain title to uh, the main region uh, in the 1670s and 1680s. This helps to explain why uh, Hull himself and any number of other Boston merchants were continually interested in uh, essentially treasure hunting. Um, because the Spanish fleets year after year would send their great uh, uh, shiploads of silver from uh, the coast of Mexico through the Caribbean across the Atlantic back to Spain, there were inevitable losses, hurricanes and storms and the like would lead ships to go down. And so the rumors that there was a sunken treasure ship here or there would make their way through the sailors and the merchants back to New England. And so in the uh, 1670s, 1680s, Hull and other merchants are sponsoring attempts to go and find some of these and use some technology being developed at the time to, to go diving and bring the treasure up. And in uh, the early 1680s, one of these actually pays off enormously well, not, not sponsored by Hull, but uh, by another, uh, actually someone originally from Maine, William Phipps, who uh, was kind of a ruffian, not originally part of the uh, Massachusetts uh, Puritan uh, culture, but who moves from Maine down to Boston, uh, becomes a ship captain, gets some backing from English uh, aristocrats and naval officers, and discovers a huge treasure ship off the coast of the Caicos Islands, north of Hispaniola, and manages to bring this, this immense treasure back to England to give it to James II, for which he's knighted and for which he himself receives 20,000 pounds in silver and gold coinage that he had uh, discovered there, a, a gigantic fortune at the time. It makes him the richest of all Bostonians in this period. But what's interesting at this, at this moment is that even though this great new influx of silver has been brought to Boston in the hands of William Phipps, who becomes its first governor uh, under the new charter of 1691, Massachusetts is already experimenting in moving beyond silver as a way to generate a monetary supply. It, it happens during the, the throes of warfare when uh, the first of the long, long series of wars between the English and the French that spills over to North America breaks out in 1689. And the New Englanders are desperately trying to defend themselves against attacks organized by the French in Canada. Um, and to pay the troops, uh, the, the, the colony begins uh, in 1690, a really bold experiment of issuing money that is paper, that is basically just, uh, you know, a promissory note that this is uh, worth whatever the value is printed on the paper, you know, six shillings or eight shillings, whatever, uh, without any significant backing other than the knowledge that, you know, there is a governor who has a lot of silver in his hands, but more so based on the confidence that people should have in the state of Massachusetts to honor its obligations. Uh, and, and so this is the beginning of a, an interesting economic trans, transition, um, very advanced, one that uh, doesn't really work perfectly at the time, but succeeds in getting Massachusetts through this first of the French wars. Um, and, and so it's a moment when the idea of the faith in the state that Massachusetts has demonstrated now through 60-some years of, of successful colonization is beginning to take over from faith in, in the materiality of, a, of an item like silver. 
Please situate Samuel Sewell's 1700 The Selling of Joseph, Jonathan Belcher's Tours of Dutch and German Realms, and Mather Family Library Holdings and the Marginalia within a changing Boston society that included slavery debates, millennial speculations, a republic of letters, and, of course, uh, Rosicrucian dreams. Okay, well, that's a big question. Um, but what, tie, what ties it all together is that uh, is the Glorious Revolution. Uh, and to take a minute to explain that, uh, in uh, the middle of the 1680s, the uh, Crown government, uh, pushed hard by King James II, the younger brother of Charles II, finally revoked the Massachusetts Charter that had been granted by Charles I back in 1629. It was that charter that had been the basis for the autonomy of Massachusetts and on which its claims to uh, a kind of quasi-independence had been grounded. And the Stuart monarchs uh, had always been resentful of that autonomy and starting with the restoration of Charles II had tried and tried and tried to restrict it. And so the revocation of the charter in 1685 was meant to be the, the nail in the coffin what, that, would, that would strip Massachusetts of self-government, for which was substituted a new government that was known as the Dominion of New England. And James II sent a military officer by the name of Edmund Andros, or Edmund Andros, to be, in effect, the dictator over all of New England and, at that time, New York and New Jersey as well. It had been three tremendously difficult years in Boston as a result, as uh, Andros instituted Church of England worship, tries to suppress Puritan worship, as he insisted that the land-owning system in New England was, uh, in a sense, um, uh, illegal, and that he was going to demand quit rents from all landholders, uh, attempts to suppress freedom of speech, uh, to jail people who opposed his regime, uh, uh, really crisis years in New England. And all of this culminates in the winter of 1688-1689, beginning with rumors that in England, uh, the Dutch... Uh, um, Stadtholder William III had invaded and deposed James II, and that James had fled to France, which turned out to be true. But before uh, the truth of those rumors had been uh, made definite, Boston too rises up against Edmund Andros. He's arrested uh, in the streets of Boston in April of 1689, put in jail. His supporters are arrested as well, eventually shipped back to, to England for decisions to be made on his fate. And Massachusetts, for the time being, returns to its old uh, first charter government. Eventually, it's a complicated story, all of this gets settled out. Uh, the new king, William, uh, issues a new charter to Massachusetts, which actually confirms the gains that it had made earlier, like the region of Maine is now part of Massachusetts, and Plymouth is now part of Massachusetts. And not all of its autonomy, autonomy is restored, because now a royal governor is going to be appointed. Massachusetts had formerly elected its own governor. But in most other ways, the, the, the system went back to what it had been uh, before James II. But really importantly, one of the things uh, that the entire reign of the Stuart monarchs, which comes to an end with the Glorious Revolution, had had as an effect on Massachusetts was that their hostility and their attempts to, in a sense, suppress Massachusetts had cut them off from many of their natural religious and cultural and commercial allies in the European world. Um, 
Protestant reformers in the Netherlands and in Germany and the like. And so one of the effects of the Glorious Revolution and its aftermath was to open up this world again. Now that a Dutch uh, Calvinist Protestant was on the English throne, to be then succeeded eventually by this German Protestant family that that the Parliament installs, uh, the House of Hanover, starting in uh, 1714. Um, the uh, the capacities or the the opportunities for uh, international interaction are suddenly opened up much more widely, and Bostonians take advantage of this. So, for instance, uh, the son of one of Boston's biggest merchants, uh, a man named Jonathan Belcher, goes on a tour in 1704 of the Netherlands, of Germany, and meets all of these remarkable people, the, the, royal, the future royal family themselves in Hanover, and scholars and scientists and religious leaders and the like, and begins to form connections to them. At the same time, uh, New England clergymen like the Mather family of Boston are starting to correspond with Dutch and German clergymen opening up the world of knowledge, of science, of uh, all kinds of different uh, reform opportunities, too. And so uh, in these decades between, let's say, the 1690s and the 1720s, there's a kind of efflorescence of these connections, which I describe in the book as the, the Protestant international, in which Bostonians uh, take a part in these international conversations about reform movements. And um, there's a great deal of speculation about the potential coming of the millennium and all kinds of ways in which the world of knowledge is expanding and missionary movements, uh, both trying to combine ideas about missionaries to the so-called Indians of the Americas with similar uh, efforts that are being made by uh, German pietist missionaries to the Indians of the East, the, the, the people of India as well. So in 1721, for instance, uh, Cotton Mather of Boston publishes a pamphlet that combines his correspondence with these uh, German missionaries in India along the Tranquebar coast with his own writings about New England's missionary efforts to the Indians of North America as a, as a kind of vision for the future of Protestant missionary efforts. So uh, this chapter of the book, chapter four, describes many of these things. And one of the interesting subjects to emerge from all of this uh, is the first glimmering of the questioning of slavery and the slave trade in the Atlantic world. And this comes in the form of a pamphlet that was published by a Boston merchant and judge named Samuel Sewell. Sewell was actually the son-in-law of John Hull, the mint master uh, who, who generated the coins and who himself was a, a, an ambitious merchant. And uh, Sewell was a devout member of Boston's third church, a very uh, um, devoted Puritan and one whom we know very well because he kept a massive diary throughout his life of his of his experiences. And the events of the 1690s cause him to begin questioning the slave trade and, and the impact of slavery on the Atlantic world generally and about his own home region of New England. And it comes about in this way. Um, one uh, during the era of the Stuart monarchy, and especially after the Restoration, much of the authority over the slave trade in the British Empire was in the hands of the royal family. Uh, James II, while he was still the Duke of York, had been the founder of the Royal Africa Company, and he and many other people connected to the royal court had 
uh, organized the monopoly of the company over the slave trade in Africa. Now, with the demise of the Stuart monarchy, Parliament brings the Royal Africa Company and its monopoly to an end in the 1690s, which means that any British trader can now get into the slave trade in Africa, including New Englanders. And so one of the instant results of that is that a lot more slave trading is going on among New Englanders. And Sewell notices this. He notices the rapid expansion of the population of enslaved people in Boston. But it's also the decade in which the wars with the French have broken out, and there's a great deal of ransoming and trading and prisoners on both sides of this. In other words, the buying and selling of human beings in that regard. And similarly, this is also a major era in which uh, the captivity of New England merchants who were engaged in trade in the Mediterranean, captivity at the hands of the um, uh, Barbary Coast or Islamic um, corsairs trying to maintain control of trade within the Mediterranean is taking place. So during the 1690s, Sewell is also involved in raising money to try to ransom uh, New Englanders out of uh, captivity in North Africa at the time. And so this, this sort of sudden concentration of the problem of the buying and selling of people and the, the uh, legitimacy or even the, the, the righteousness of such activity is preying on Sewell's mind. And in 1700, he writes a pamphlet. It's called The Selling of Joseph. And he, he uses this metaphor from the Bible to, to, to advance his argument. He uh, tells the story of Joseph, the youngest son of Jacob, whose brothers, you know, throw him into a pit and uh, sell him into slavery in Egypt. Of course, Joseph rises up to become a great figure in Egypt. He becomes, you know, the Pharaoh's vice regent and uh, Egypt's savior in times of, of uh, famine and the like. But what Sewell is saying is that no matter what happened to Joseph and the fact that he becomes a great man, it's still not right that 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 the buying and selling of people is simply man-stealing and that uh, no amount of benefit that comes from it can actually justify it. And so uh, it, it doesn't transform New England's relationship to slavery at all. If anything, the next century uh, involves uh, the region, just like all of the British Empire, getting more and more deeply involved in it. But it's of a piece of this general conversation or movement in which people are starting to question some of the premises of empire and wonder whether each and every bit of the way the British Empire is performing its functions is legitimate, is necessary, and the like. So it's uh, the early decades of the 18th century are really this moment when, on the one hand, the empire is expanding enormously, and Boston is now, for the first time, really you know, proud and willing to be a part of it. And yet, on the other hand, it's also the moment of the birth of a kind of questioning about the way in which the empire does its business. After the 1710 conquest of Acadia, now known as Nova Scotia, how and why did Huguenot exile Jean-Paul Mascarene facilitate mining and Acadian trade? And what was the role of William Shirley in the deportation of Acadians as something shocking? Right. Well, this... uh, uh, is a direct uh, extension of of what I was just discussing in that um, under uh, William III and then uh, his successors, part of the sort of essential purpose of the British Empire 
is increasingly to be the Protestant champion of Europe against the power of France. And France, under the consolidated authority of, of Louis XIV, the, the Sun King, uh, had been uh, ever on uh, the military expansionist side. And so uh, starting in the 1690s, these you know series of wars between Britain and France not only grow in intensity in Europe, but also uh, spill over into the colonial possessions. It becomes increasingly part of the conflict between these empires that that colonial possessions are important to it. So in 1710, uh, led by a number of British army officers, Britain manages to take the region that we now know as Nova Scotia, which the French colonists called Acadia, uh, and capture it from uh, from French control and maintain that control from that point forward. The problem was that, uh, from a British point of view, that is, it wasn't a problem for the French. It was that um, you know Acadia was was peopled by tens of thousands of French speaking Roman Catholic on the whole and loyal uh, French men and women who weren't particularly pleased at now being under British rule. So this is where this really fascinating character, Jean-Paul Massarin, fits in. He uh, was born in the south of France uh, to a French Protestant Huguenot family. But he had the misfortune of being born right around the time uh, in 1685 when Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, which for almost a century had, had allowed uh, French Protestants to be tolerated within uh, the Kingdom of France. And now suddenly in 1685, it meant that uh, Huguenots either had to renounce their faith and become Catholic, or else they had to leave or go into hiding. And so uh, Jean-Paul Massarine's father sent his young son out of France, uh, first to the Netherlands and then to Germany in order to evade the authorities and uh, gained a Protestant education and eventually made his way to England, where the uh, in, in light of this sort of endemic uh, military conflict between the two empires, uh, the English military started a, a regiment of exiled Huguenots to take part in their wars against the French. And so Jean-Paul Massarine joined that and in that context was sent to this new English province of Nova Scotia uh, to be an officer and you know, take part in its governance. The idea was that the British military would govern this province because they couldn't imagine any possible way of setting up a, a representative government, a, a, an assembly, when the people there themselves were French Catholics with no experience of parliamentary self-government um, and no obvious loyalty to the English crown. And so uh, Masserine is part of this uh, ruling government, but because he's fluent in French and has all of these language skills, he essentially becomes the Acadian's favorite uh, British officer. He does much of the facilitation of relationships between the two. And like many of the British officers who were stationed in Nova Scotia, he also found it congenial to spend his winters not in the cold uh, and, and difficult uh, Nova Scotia environment, but in Boston. And so he becomes slowly incorporated into Boston society. In Boston, there's a large exiled Huguenot population. They have their own French church. And he actually marries into the sort of English... Uh, uh, genteel families of the region and becomes uh, himself quite devoted to the city of Boston, to its culture, to its society and the like. Uh, 
And so he plays this interesting sort of facilitating part between the French Catholics in Acadia, who are, who are generally referred to as the French neutrals, because in order to solve the loyalty problem, they were asked to swear an oath that uh, while they would retain their religion and their, uh, their French identity, they would agree never to fight with the French against the English, that they would remain neutral if there was ever any warfare, which of course there was, between the, the British and the French. Now, from Masserine's point of view, that worked very well, and it went on for decade after decade, um, and he uh, became this sort of important go-between. But after his retirement uh, and, and uh, permanent uh, stationing in, in Boston, the, the governance of Nova Scotia began to shift. And in particular, it shifted under the hands of a man by the name of William Shirley, who was appointed as the royal governor of Massachusetts around 1740 and actually served a very long term, uh, well into the late 1750s as Massachusetts governor. He was an Englishman trained as a lawyer there, and unlike Massarine, he had no great love for Boston and its culture, its Puritan heritage, its uh, tradition as religious dissenter, and in fact made his uh, fame and his fortune as a great ally of British military operations. Shirley was always suspicious of the Acadian, the so-called French neutrals, and so were many other leading figures in the British military. And this was accentuated in 1745 when uh, a Catholic uprising in Britain led by the exiled uh, pretender to the throne, Bonnie Prince Charlie, as he was called, Charles Stuart, uh, uh, took place in which uh, Charles Stuart tried to lead an army from Scotland to invade England. Now, that was brutally put down, and the Catholic resistance in Scotland was, was wiped out. But this, this fear of a, a kind of Catholic enemy within the empire uh, motivated much of the uh, British political and military establishment. And they decided that they could no longer tolerate the idea of these French Catholic neutrals in Acadia. And William Shirley came up with a plan for their deportation, that it would allow sending armies uh, to Acadia to round up the Acadians, to hire ships from Boston merchants in, that would move them in the tens of thousands of people out of Acadia into the other North American colonies where they would be dispersed, and then... Uh, replace them with, uh, with uh, English Protestants who would resettle Acadia as yet another uh, loyal British province. And so during the, the Seven Years' War that started in uh, 1754 in the back country of Virginia, Shirley, together with uh, officers in the British Army, implement this plan. And uh, in Massachusetts, thousands of soldiers are raised to go on this. And, and so the book tells the story of one of these men, a man by the name of Abijah Willard, who came from the, the hinterland, Lancaster, Massachusetts, who was asked to raise a, a, a company of 100 soldiers from his surrounding town, march them down to Boston, and be sent on ships for some mysterious mission in Nova Scotia. No one knew quite what they were going to do. Well, what the mission was was essentially a form of ethnic cleansing, and uh, Abijah Willard was given orders to go marching into the Acadian wilderness, not really wilderness, actually. It was you know, farmland. It was occupied by uh, these French Canadians for, for many decades. There he met up with 
the captain of an English regular army uh, company. Together they opened their orders, and the orders were to basically burn every Acadian village that they came across between there and the, the coast across from Prince Edward Island. And this is what uh, what Abijah Willard thought of as, as something shocking. It was shocking to him in part because for the days that they were marching into the countryside, the Acadian people had treated them very well, had fed them, had allowed them to lodge in their barns and the like. Um, and essentially, he was being asked to deport you know, village farmers who were, other than their religion and native language, not particularly different from himself and, and the hundred men he had round out, rounded up from the Massachusetts hinterland. And yet they were loyal uh, uh, members of the British Empire and they conducted their orders and they burned the villages and destroyed the food, all for the purpose of making it impossible for the Acadians to survive the harsh winter so that the, the troops could round them up and disperse them. The, the really uh, tragic irony of all of this is that when Abijah Willard returned to his home in Lancaster, Massachusetts, after this horrific mission, what does he find there but 30 Acadians who had been dispersed to his own hometown uh, to, to send them out of uh, their homeland? And, and, and these poor people you know, lived out their lives in misery in a place that they had never been to. And uh, uh, it, it, the, the larger purpose of this part of the book is to show the gradual disillusion of Bostonians' faith in the military purposes of the British Empire. They were loyal, they were willing to do what the crown asked them to do, but the, the, the rationale behind it, the reason for uh, brutally removing these people from their homeland uh, was, was largely lost on them. And the, 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 the greater value of the uh, military aspect of the empire was something they were beginning to question. Who were Phyllis Wheatley and her 18 supporters? And why do you describe her uh, collection of poems as a circulating commodity? What roles did ideas of Christian liberty and mercy play in her poetry? And what ultimately became of Wheatley? Well, Wheatley is, to me, one of the most fascinating uh, and important characters in Boston's history. As you might have guessed from the, the previous discussion of the Acadian removal, one of the things I want to do in talking about how the revolutionary upheaval comes to Boston is focus on, on the losses, the, what was destroyed when the ties with Britain came apart. And Phyllis Wheatley is, is a very effective way to do that. She was, we don't know what her uh, native name was. She was a child somewhere in West Africa who was kidnapped, who was, who was captured and sold into slavery somewhere around the age of five or six. And uh, she was uh, the last unsold part of a cargo of slaves that arrived in Boston around 1761 uh, on a ship that was called the Phyllis. And there she was purchased by the Wheatley family, who named her at the she was probably about seven years old after the ship. And so she was called Phyllis Wheatley, which uh, is a little bit like being named, uh, uh, you know, slave ship master's child. Right. That, mm -hmm. Phyllis Wheatley, in a sense, stands for for those things. And yet she was an extraordinary person. And uh, the wife of John Wheatley, who bought her, Susanna Wheatley, 
recognized this early on, uh, taught her to read and, and write quite early. And in fact, she even learned to, to, to read some Latin. And she began writing poetry as a child and, and really quite good poetry. So by the time she is in her early teens, and mind you, she is working as a, a, an enslaved domestic servant in a wealthy merchant family's household, right in the heart of Boston, right at the foot of State Street, uh, or what was then King Street. She's nonetheless uh, uh, writing, you know, odes to major figures in British politics or in uh, Boston society and the like. She becomes a devout Puritan Christian. She's baptized by uh, Joseph Sewell, Samuel Sewell's son, and becomes a member of the Old South Church. And uh, she's, she's uh, I don't know how else you say it, a prodigy, a phenomenon. Um, and there are times, in fact, when the Wheatleys visiting other uh, significant, um, you know, wealthy Boston families bring Phyllis along to read her poems. And so you have the sort of very odd scene of enslaved servants in other households serving tea to this enslaved uh, servant because she's this prodigious literary uh, emerging celebrity. Uh, finally, in the early 1770s, Susanna Wheatley goes to London her health was bad, and she thought that the, the, the journey to England might help her. But as part of it, she goes and, and meets an extraordinary set of characters, including members of the high nobility, like the Countess of Huntington, who's very interested in, in reform issues of, of all sorts. And she meets early anti-slavery figures in England, like um, Granville Sharp, who becomes a real advocate for the abolition of the slave trade. Um, and then finally, in 1773, she publishes a collection of dozens of her poems. Uh, first, it's published in London, but then in Boston as well. And of course, many, many readers would have been utterly incredulous at the idea that a teenaged African enslaved girl, all of those being unique qualities for an author at the time, could have actually written these poems. And so at the very beginning of the book, 18 of Boston's most respectable men, uh, the governor, the lieutenant governor, merchants, clergymen, doctors, and the like, are all assign their names to an attestation saying they absolutely know that Phyllis wrote these by herself, that this is her work, that there's no, you know, hoax being played or anything here. Um, and the poems themselves are extraordinary. They are political, they are incisive, they uh, comment on the current crisis that the empire is facing over things like the Stamp Act and the Townsend duties and the like. And, and to me, the thing that's most remarkable is that despite her condition as an enslaved person, as an African, as a woman, she confidently speaks as the voice of New England's liberties and of its religious traditions. She does not in any way allow the circumstances of her life to get in a way in the way of her claiming her birthright of the kind of liberty that she thinks New England stands for. Um, and, and, and so these poems are remarkable to read in that sense. Um, in fact, my former teacher at Harvard, uh, Peter Gallison, uh, recently made a film about uh, the remarkable quality of her voice in that regard. Um, it, it, her poems are definitely worth reading. I refer to them as a circulating commodity for, for two reasons. One is that many of the poems in their contents dwell on the British Empire 
as a system that circulates goods through all parts of the world and that finds its value by getting the right things in the right places. Uh, and that, that the empire is performing a kind of service to humanity uh, through that process. At the same time, what she worries about is that circulation coming to an end, that things like the, the Townsend duties or the Stamp Act or the conflict between the colonies and the home country are going to destroy the beneficial effects of this kind of circulation. Secondly, what she does in these poems again and again is write odes of one kind or another as, as a form of tribute. She writes them to the king and to the Earl of Dartmouth and to the countess and to major religious leaders like George Whitfield, the great evangelist, or to, to important figures in Boston like Joseph Sewell, her, her, her own minister. Um, and, and in fact, she also writes a poem uh, to the great... Uh, uh, Roman patron of the arts to, to begin the whole sequence. In, in other words, she's talking about how this idea of, of, of patronage, of dedication to others is, uh, is central to her poetical project. So in, in a sense, uh, what I see these poems as is as a kind of creation by herself of her own art as a kind of tribute money, as, as her ability to, to, like Massachusetts did in the 17th century, to utter her own currency, to create her own value and set it circulating in the larger world. And it takes a great sense of self-confidence and authority to be able to do that sort of thing. So in other words, at, at this moment in the early 1770s, she's still really hopeful that the conflict between the colonies and the empire can be resolved, and this emerging vision of a reformed empire, and that these people like the Earl of Dartmouth and Granville Sharp who are imagining uh, an improvement on the British empire and an extension of it as a source of liberty are going to triumph, and that all of this will be resolved. And so in that sense, the, what happens over the course of the next couple of years is, is really a great and tragic irony as well. Uh, it's only about six months after her poems are published that the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor takes place in December of 1773. And from that point, it just descends into greater and greater destruction and, and, and uh, ending of the empire as a, a circulation of positive goods. For Phyllis Wheatley herself, the American Revolution is disastrous. Um, the Wheatley family themselves are loyalists, uh, go into exile, uh, her support system evaporates, uh, and, and during the siege, Boston itself is horribly destroyed. It becomes extremely difficult to uh, make ends meet, to earn a living in Boston, and there's you know, smallpox outbreaks and starvation and the like. And so Phyllis Wheatley's life goes into a kind of a tailspin. Yes, she is nominally freed in this time, but freed into a world where, where the conditions that she faces are very difficult. Um, she marries, she has, she finds, she marries a, a free black man by the name of John Peters, and they have uh, three children, but she dies as a consequence of complications from childbirth after the third child. And her, her, her publishing career comes to an end, essentially. She publishes very little uh, and, and I think doesn't have the opportunity to get her work in print. And so um, the, in many ways, the Wheatley chapter is meant to focus on the, the aspects of uh, Boston's connection to the empire that were destroyed in the, in the independence movement. So let's move on to John Adams. Why do you focus on his early years from 1761 approximately to 1788? 
And how did Adams's writings reflect his conception of the history and Republican liberty of the Boston city-state? Now, in your response, please at least try to address, uh, at the bare minimum, three of the following. Uh, his 1765, those collected essays, the uh, dissertation on the canon feudal law, um, the Novanglis essays, um, definitely the uh, Boston-centric thoughts on government, his model treaty, his contributions to the Massachusetts Constitution, as well as his uh, 1787 um, to 88 defense of the American constitutions. Right. Uh, well, in the book, in a sense, Adams focuses, or, or I'm sorry, um, uh, functions as the counterpart to Phyllis Wheatley. If Wheatley and her uh, aspirations for a benevolent British empire were the thing that was destroyed by uh, the rebellion and independence, Adams was someone who uh, was made by the rebellion and independence, someone who uh, we would very likely not have heard of at all uh, had it not been for the break. Adams, you know, was from a sort of middling South Shore uh, Braintree family, uh, uh, goes to Harvard as a scholarship student, um, becomes a kind of middling lawyer, um, and then his life is transformed by uh, the crisis in the empire that begins uh, in the 1760s. And I focus on his earlier years, although not that early. He was kind of a late bloomer. Um, True. Uh, but his years in the 60s and 70s and, and his period as a diplomat, first to the Continental Congress and then to various European governments, as a way to understand both the sort of hopeful aspects of the rebellion and American independence, uh, and then also to realize the degree to which uh, Adams, as a representative of sort of New England's views of republicanism, don't actually succeed in changing the rest of what becomes the United States or, or uh, uh, to, to accept his vision of these kinds of things. So I, I do this in part by focusing on a series of writings that Adams generates across this period. And his writing was always profoundly influenced by his reading of history. He was a very uh, devoted historical reader, both to the history of Boston and New England, which he knew extremely well, but also classical history, European history, and the like. And, and that, that's a, a thread that runs through all of his writings. So the first of these, uh, he wrote at, at the time of the Stamp Act in 1765, and it was his, he was about 30 years old at the time, and it was his first attempt to kind of codify his views on a kind of Boston and New England view of uh, political theory. It's called a dissertation on the canon and feudal law. And in it, he argues that those two things, in a sense, church government and the, the civil government under the ancient system of essentially uh, power dependencies built on military authority, that these are the things that had kept Europe uh, ignorant and enslaved and that the ordinary people of the time were oppressed by through the Middle Ages. And in Adam's view, it was the Reformation of the 16th century that begins to break both the hold of, of church authority and of uh, military civil authority over the population, and that England, to the extent that it flourished in the early modern period, did so by pushing back against the canon and feudal law. 
And above all, he believed that the foundation of New England, its settlement by the Puritans and its development of its own form of uh, both religious and civil government had been uh, you know, the successful overthrow of those. In other words, both in church and in state, New Englanders governed themselves based on uh, authority at the local level. And this is what Adams, above all, was committed to as the best form of government. At the time of the Stamp Act, uh, this was a kind of unusual position at the moment, but he saw in the Stamp Act an attempt to, by the British crown to reassert the canon and feudal law. Um, among other things, he noted that the Stamp Act's attacks uh, on uh, diplomas uh, and on paper, published paper reading material was aimed at the literacy and the learning of New Englanders and that it was the sort of entering wedge of trying to restore people to a, a state of ignorance and, and um, mystification that the the canon law had always been meant to support and on the feudal side the fact that now parliament was legislating for colonies that had their own parliaments and had not voted on these things was in his eyes a sign of uh dominion right of the raw assertion of king and parliament of authority over colonists that had not ceded that authority to them so already in 1765 uh the heart of his thinking about self-governance is present there, and, it, and it's deeply rooted in a, a New England-based model. And so the Novanglis essays that he writes during the height of the crisis in 1774-75 were written in response to an old uh, colleague of his who had written um, uh, sort of essentially essays arguing about the importance of remaining loyal to the crown, and uh, Adams takes the what he sees of as the Novanglis New England position, saying no, that the what the Crown has been doing has been violating the self-governance that has been a birthright of New England, you know, since its uh, earliest point. So all of these things are, are brought forward once the uh, movement towards independence is well underway in 1776, when uh, Adams is a, a, a representative of Massachusetts in the Continental Congress. Interestingly to me, and, and this is part of this whole sort of argument about Boston's autonomy uh, and, its, and its tradition as an autonomous state, when he goes to the First Continental Congress in uh, the fall of 1774 and writes letters back to Abigail Adams, his wife, uh, who remained uh, home in Massachusetts, he describes himself and his fellow delegates to the Continental Congress as ambassadors to the Continental Congress, uh, not as you know delegates or members, uh, in part because they really were ambassadors. He didn't know these people from the other colonies. They were strangers to him, representatives of other, uh, in his eyes, autonomous polities. And so that use of a diplomatic word is, is, is sort of critical to understanding how he thinks about this. So anyway, as independence is being discussed in the spring of 1776 in Congress, any number Number of other uh, members of the Congress are asking him what he thinks the states' governments should look like uh, once they declare independence and you know discard their old charters and reform themselves. And so, in that context, he publishes a pamphlet called "Thoughts on Government," in which he lays this out. And essentially, 
this is these are just sort of somewhat abstracted versions of the government of Massachusetts under its old charter, in which he argues that you know this should be self-government, grounded at a local level, assemblies drawn from the towns or the counties or whatever the constitutive units are, that those assemblies should elect upper houses and that together they should elect their governors, that elections should be annual so that the people frequently get to uh, you know, review and change the government if they want to, and that this very Republican uh, hands-on model of government should be the one that all of the different states use. Now, of course, this is how it works out. And in fact, uh, one of the Virginia delegates, a man by the name of Carter Braxton, read Adam's pamphlet and thought it was entirely laughable and that Virginia in no way is going to govern itself under this kind of highly democratic uh, system. And Carter Braxton instead calls for the idea of, you know, a kind of upper house as an aristocracy for life and a governor with very long terms and with concentrated powers among the planter elite of Virginia. And so already, even before independence takes place, you're beginning to see how different regions of the country have extremely different ideas about um, uh, what kind of... Uh, government uh, is appropriate for the, the different commonwealths that will form the United States. Uh, and it's even evident in, uh, uh, in the model treaty that Adams writes immediately after independence. His idea of how this new league of friendship among the United States should deal with the rest of the outside world is that it should only have commercial treaties with other countries that it should not you know, have defensive alliances or military alliances or God forbid political alliances that will give other countries political authority over the United States. In other words, it's like taking um, Massachusetts history as a colony and idealizing it in which you know, it will be entirely self-governing internally and the only way it will deal with the outside world is with respect to commerce of one kind or another, forming advantageous trade treaties and the like. And so he has this sort of consistent vision of what Massachusetts should be like, what the other states should be like, and how they should relate to the rest of the world. And, and the sad fact is that none of this works. The first treaty that the United States does sign is a military alliance with France, which gives France military authority and involvement in American relations and the like. Now, of course, I, you could argue, and I think it's true, that that was essential to winning the war, but it is not how Adams was envisioning the new United States. Um, and uh, um, interestingly, when he goes to France first and then on to the Netherlands and England as a diplomat, many of his ideas for uh, the state constitutions, including the draft that he writes of the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780, are actually ridiculed by French philosophers uh, in the decade before the revolution, people like uh, Tourgeau. And um, they, uh, they look at the Massachusetts Constitution or, or Adams' thoughts on government and think that it's too much an imitation of the British structure because it has a lower house and an upper house and an executive, you know, sort of like commons and lords and king. And what they don't understand is how deeply rooted this was not in, in British politics, but in New England's politics and its traditions. And that it, it's a form of republicanism that uh, Adams had, uh, had, you know, given serious thought to. And so, uh, in the late 1780s, during his last years as a, a diplomat in England, he wrote this uh, long uh, volume, the Defense of the American Constitutions, 
not the U.S. Constitution of uh, 1787, because he had finished this before that uh, was known to him, but rather of the American state constitutions and the Articles of Confederation. And what he's doing there is using the ancient history of republics, going all the way back to Greece and Rome and tracing them through the Italian republics and the like, in order to demonstrate that his vision of the kind of government that Massachusetts had with a you know, bicameral assembly and an executive, but with frequent elections and with the power in the hands of the people all the time, was really the ideal form of a republic. And, and so, uh, weirdly, the Constitution that emerges in 1787-88, the United States Constitution, that is, that he returns to, and which he then becomes the first vice president under, was not very much like his own vision of what the United States would be like. In a lot of ways, it, re it represents a failure of his imagination of the future United States. But ever a kind of pragmatist in political matters, he... Uh, nonetheless accepts the office of uh, vice presidency to which he is elected as uh, the, the kind of junior officer to George Washington. Similarly, how and why did Boston as a city-state shape the 1789 approximately to 1815 ideas and decisions of federal representatives Josiah Quincy and Fisher Ames? In your response, please at least try to address their perspectives on uh, the molasses for fish and tonnage de debates, but also the uh, New England essays, um, Danger of American Liberty, uh, the uh, Eli Amendment, uh, the Constitutional Compact ideas, and uh, the Hartford Convention and the Separate Movement. Just uh, address maybe two or three. Sure. Well, in a lot of ways, the, the failure of Adams' vision for what the United States would become, what the constitutions of the other different states would become, was a, a sort of foreshadowing of what actually happens when the United States government under the Constitution begins in 1789. And as I see it, the problem was this, that uh, those Bostonians who were in favor of the Constitution quite rightly understood that the new power of the government to regulate commerce and form commercial treaties with other countries would be or could be beneficial to their uh, mercantile economy. They needed to be able to trade with France and Spain and Britain and the like, and that the new uh, diplomatic power of the, of the constitutional government and the um, uh, regulatory authority over commerce would, would help them with that. But I think what they failed to understand was that the form that politics would take under the new constitution might work differently than they expected. New England had a very long history of federal or confederation government. It went all the way back to 1643 when um, the New England Confederation was formed as a, a defensive alliance among Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Haven, and Plymouth. And it's also how politics was largely conducted within the colony of Massachusetts. Um, and even for that matter, within the towns of Massachusetts. If you, if you look at um, the records of town government for town after town in colonial Massachusetts or New England, you'll find unanimous votes in uh, the towns on all kinds of issues. And even at the colony-wide government, you'll often find very large majorities in, that, that uh, uh, pass 
what might seem to be controversial legislation. And the reason is that the political culture of New England through the colonial period was built around the idea of consensus, that you tended not to want to do something within your community or within the colony if it would create a severe and permanent rift. That is, the idea was that for a confederation or a republic to work, you needed to form consensus. And if something didn't achieve unanimity or very large majorities, you just tabled it. You set it aside until you could rework it or reshape it and until you could get that. But that was how self-government operated best. And so the town records of New England show unanimity not because everyone was always in agreement on things. They weren't. They often fought bitterly about them. But the culture was that you didn't vote on them until you had reached a point where there was something that everyone could agree on. That was the sort of culture of how federal politics worked in New England. And much to the surprise of first Fisher Ames, who was Boston's first congressman to the United States government, and then his successors, notably Josiah Quincy, that's not how the United States Congress worked. And in fact, this was illustrated in the very first session of Congress in the spring of 1789. James Madison for Virginia introduces a, a uh, commercial customs regulation bill. And everyone was expecting that because the whole idea was that now this, the government had taxing power and customs duties were the easiest way to do this. And so no one was objecting to this on ideological purposes. This is what the United States Congress had been created to do. But the, the striking problem was that the bill that Madison introduced had a very high duty on molasses, which was a major import in Boston. It was imported in part because there was a big rum industry and molasses was the necessary ingredient for it. It was also imported because that was the major sweetener in the diet of New Englanders. And the, the problem was that the fishing industry of New England depended highly on molasses imports. And this was something that someone like Madison, a Virginia plantation owner, and many other members of Congress just did not and could not understand. But the way it worked was that uh, in the summertime, when New England fishermen caught fish that were sort of the, at the worst part of the year, fish that were very difficult to market in most places because they were generally referred to as like sort of trash fish. But, and this is kind of an ugly fact, the plantation owners of the West Indies were happy to buy this stuff to feed to their slaves because they didn't much care about the quality of the fish that their slaves got. And essentially, the summer New England fishing industry traded fish for molasses that they then brought back to Boston, sold, and this kept the fishing industry going through the summertime. And so when this high-tax molasses bill was put forward, um, the Fisher Ames steps up and says, well, the bill is fine except for one thing, and that the duty on molasses is too high because it will ruin this industry that is important to the whole New England region. And to his surprise, he was then attacked by Madison, by Thomas Fitzsimmons of Pennsylvania, and a whole slew of others who thought that he was somehow being sort of local and, and selfish and not being patriotic enough. And, and, and it had nothing to do with that. It was simply that if they lowered the tax on this duty, which all of the states would pay equally, um, the, uh, um, 
uh, everything would be fine. But at this particular rate, uh, it would be ruinous to an industry. And then one of his colleagues from New England, from New Hampshire, stood up and noted that the percentage of tax on molasses that uh, the bill was asking for, if it was put on another commodity, such as slaves, would, would be the equivalent of a $50 per head tax on slaves. Now, the thing is, the Southern planters had carefully introduced into the Constitution itself a clause saying that the tax on slaves could at most be $10 per head, right? And so this New England congressman was, was essentially trying to point out the unfairness of the molasses tax by comparing it to the importation of a commodity, slaves, that was crucial to Southern production. This caused a giant uproar within Congress at the time. And Madison has to say he's just going to pretend he hadn't heard that and go on, right? But it, it shows how immediately the way in which the Southern delegates are thinking about these issues that in New England had always required consensus were working differently. And that so long as they could have a majority vote and get their way, they would go ahead and do it, whether or not it hurt another part of the country. And this was sort of antithetical to New England ways of thinking about things. Now, what's really critical to this is that part of the reason that the South is able to get majorities was another provision of the original Constitution, which was the infamous three-fifths clause, giving the slave states uh, greater representation by representing every one of their five slaves as the equivalent of three free persons. And so as this form of winner-take-all politics is clearly developing in Congress, which again is something that the New England and in particular the Boston delegates tried to resist, it's increasingly clear that the three-fifths clause is at the heart of the ability of Southerners to get these majorities and to sort of weaponize them uh, against New Englanders. And so the, you know, the Ely Amendment was written in 1804 by William Ely, a New England uh, congressman, as an attempt to uh, amend the Constitution to get rid of the three-fifths clause. And this is something that uh, both Fisher Ames and Josiah Quincy as Boston's congressmen strongly support. Of course, it doesn't go anywhere because the southern states won't even consider it, but it, it, it's an indication of how this issue is coming forward. One of the great examples of this uh, comes in 1811, uh, when the idea of the admission of Louisiana to the Union is being argued over in Congress. Um, and by this time, Josiah Quincy is, is Boston's congressman, and he, um, he had been grudgingly accepting of Jefferson's purchase of the Louisiana Territory, even though it was beyond the bounds of the original United States, and even though it was an extension of uh, Jefferson's presidential powers beyond the letter of the Constitution. But Quincy thought that it was in the legitimate interests of some of the states in the Union to be able to navigate the Mississippi. And if this was the way that Jefferson could achieve that, then, you know, it was okay. He wasn't crazy about it, but he would accept it. But where he drew the line, and, and in a remarkable speech in, in Congress in 1811, he, Quincy laid this out, was that in the idea of admitting new states to the Union out of the Louisiana Purchase. Because here, the Constitution had and, and has no language, right? The, the Constitution's language for the admission of new states had been expressly about the territory that had been given to the United States in the Treaty of 1783, the, Par the Treaty of Paris. That is, all of the land out to the Mississippi, but not beyond it. And what Quincy's point was, and this went back to the Ely Amendment, 
was that when the states had made the compact in 1787, the compromise over the three-fifths clause was based on the idea that they already knew what the size of the United States was and that the states would have to agree to admit new states in the territory they already had. And the danger of admitting states out of the Louisiana Purchase was that, in effect, it meant that the number of states in the compact could be expanded virtually infinitely, that you could carve dozens of states out of Louisiana, and God knows how many more territories the United States might require after that. And so Quincy's point was that it was fine to acquire new territory, but to admit new states to the compact was really changing the terms of the compact itself. And that, in his opinion, it meant that the Constitution's legitimacy was over and that they needed to go back to the drawing board and rewrite it. Now, of course, he lost here as well. Uh, all Congress had to do was simply vote, and uh, a majority won, and Louisiana was added to the Union. And so essentially, the Constitution could be changed again and again and again by adding new states, and if those states brought in slaves, they could gain the three-fifths uh, uh, bonus in representation that had originally been thought to apply only to the original territory of the United States. So it's this concern that not only does the three-fifths bonus give the South greater power in this winner-take-all game, but that the increase of that power is, is limitless. And so that's partly what drives uh, the New England states to meet at Hartford in 1814, and, and the so-called Hartford Convention, to think seriously about something like the Ely Amendment to get rid of the Three-Fifths Clause and change the terms. Um, unfortunately, those amendments that they put forward at Hartford arrived in Washington just at the moment that the War of 1812 was uh, coming to an end with the Treaty of Ghent, and the moment at which the news of Jackson's victory in New Orleans also rescued the, the Madison administration from the earlier disasters of the war. And so the, the hoped-for amendments that Hartford put forward never took place. And uh, in a sense, New England was disgraced in national politics as a result of it. But it, it was the outcome of a, a way of seeing politics that New Englanders and Bostonians had tried to shape, but that ultimately failed during this, this period. Please briefly address Boston's cultural and commercial relationship uh, with France, really briefly, as well as the rise of global trade. In addition, how and why did industrial espionage, as well as the Boston Manufacturing Company and Lowell Mills, entangle Boston's formerly federative leaders, such as Daniel Webster, in assenting to an erosion of city-state political economy and autonomy? Okay. Well, I'll talk briefly about the, the, the French part of the story here. Um, despite the, the sort of general understanding that the French Revolution uh, is uh, something that uh, the Jeffersonians and the Republicans supported and that the, the uh, Federalists opposed, it's actually quite surprising to see how much of the commercial development of Boston's merchants after independence, and in particular after the signing of the Constitution, was developed through French trade. Uh, I focus on the, the Perkins family, um, James and Thomas Handis and Perkins in particular, who make a fortune in Saint-Domingue as slave traders and as uh, uh, running a commercial house there, um, 
before and actually well after the outbreak of the Haitian Revolution. They stay there as late as 1794. And then they expand their fortune by trading to France during the French Revolution uh, right on into the 1790s. It's not the French Revolution itself so much as the rise of Napoleon that finally sours uh, Boston's relationship with revolutionary France, certainly as seen on the commercial side. But it's also important to to note that the, that trade with France is part of what creates the or sustains the commercial fortunes that allow uh, people like the Perkinses to begin trading in China, to extend their trade relationships to Russia, all kinds of other places at the time. However, the rise of the kind of winner-take-all politics that I just described and the the dominance of the national legislature by the Jeffersonians starting in 1800 means that the capacity of Bostonians to conduct these global commercial relationships is uh, suddenly quite precarious, not because of the power of overseas threats like the French or the British or anything like that, but rather from the power of their own you know, fellow citizens of the United States. Jefferson, as president, introduces the embargo in 1807, and it's strongly supported by the Republican legislature. And essentially what he's doing is weaponizing overseas commerce, uh, using it as a way to try to threaten and coerce the British and the French into better trade terms. But the effect of it is utterly ruinous on Boston and New England's economy. The, the whole idea of an overseas trade embargo means that you know Boston's ships are rotting at the docks. And so it's in the face of this threat, not, not an external threat, but really an internal threat, that some Boston merchants begin thinking about ways of shifting their economic focus away from overseas trade, which now they feel like they no longer have full control over, and, and towards something more reliable and more stable. And so this is the moment when Francis Cabot Lowell of, uh, uh, of Boston travels to the United Kingdom, views the mills in Scotland and in England, the new cotton mechanized textile mills, and uh, commits the plans to memory and comes back to Boston and uh, hires uh, some effective engineers and starts building the mills. The first one, the Boston Manufacturing Company in Waltham, along the Charles, and then expanding rapidly uh, along the Merrimack up in Lowell, the town named after him. And with it, transforms Boston's economy. Uh, he is able to compete with the uh, English cotton producers in large part by the way of the introduction of tariffs that he lobbies with the South Carolinians to, to pass. And so starting in about 1815 and rapidly growing for the next several decades, Boston becomes a cotton textile production company. And what that means is that it's now dependent on a commodity, raw cotton, that it doesn't produce itself. Up until that time, the ability of New Englanders to produce foodstuffs, grain, meats, uh, and, and its fishing industry was the basis of its overseas economy, that starting from those locally produced goods, it could adventure out into the world and transform them into all kinds of different profits. And from this point forward, that changes. By 1831, the majority of Boston's ocean-going trade is now no longer going to foreign destinations. 
it's going to places in the United States like Savannah and Mobile and New Orleans and the like to buy cotton to bring back to Boston to turn into finished cotton goods. And by the first industrial survey of the late 1830s, it's now clear that something like half of Boston's jobs in one way or another are devoted to the production or processing or, uh, or sales and distribution of cotton and cotton-related products. The way in which this affects uh, Boston's political condition and political autonomy is that now this dependency on Southern cotton is, is reshaping how its politics worked. While it was a colony, Boston, of course, relied on slave-produced goods like sugar, but the plantation owners in the West Indies had no political authority over uh, Boston itself, right? Boston was still an, an independent legislature. But now, as part of the United States, the fact that Bostonians purchased their cotton from states with these very powerful political figures in the United States meant that its political leaders had to consider that as part of their positions. And, and Daniel Webster, of course, is the great case of this. As a young man and a member of Congress in the 18-teens, he had been very much in favor of things like the amendments of the Hartford Convention, right? He had been outspoken against the way in which the three-fifths clause was suppressing the interests of New England. But once he moves to Boston and becomes the lawyer for all of these major manufacturing companies, the Lowell's and the Lawrence's and the Appleton's and the like, he, his position show, slowly shifts. And, you know, situation after situation, question after question, shift him into being a nationalist in favor of union above all and abandoning his old sort of moral and political qualms about the power of the southern slave states over New England. And and you can slowly see it sapping the the autonomy and and the moral integrity that Bostonians had once brought to the project of creating a, a United States Confederation. And you also see it beginning to tear apart the political fabric of the city from within. How and why did a German Republic of Letters, as well as Goltenian scholarly circles, contribute to Philhellenic pursuits in Boston arts, literature, and institutions, as well as that burgeoning divide between philanthropists and objects, in quotes, of their charity? Please provide examples in your response of educational reform, libraries, institutes, asylums, hospitals, and those unconditional perspectives. Well, so what I argue is that uh, the failure of federalism, the defeat of the Hartford Convention, the sort of disaster on national politics that Bostonians face in and around 1814, 1815, leads to a a shift among uh, its more ambitious circles. That is, uh, national politics in many ways seems to be closed off to Boston and its interests from 1815 forward. And so a number and a growing number of young elite Bostonians, the sons, many of them Harvard graduates of the commercial and the industrial leaders and the like, start turning towards culture as the future of Boston if it's going to be a leader within the United States. And so in 1815, a handful of these young men, uh, George Tickner, uh, Edward Everett, uh, George Bancroft, um, and uh, uh, William Prescott, 
all go to Europe, and in particular to Germany, to extend their education. And in particular, the place that they go is the University of Göttingen, which at this time is renowned throughout the world as the leader of new kinds of scholarship, in particular critical scholarship about the Bible and uh, you know seeing it as a literary text and understanding its construction over time and uh, essentially attacking its foundation as you know the Word of God and divine Scripture and and uh, developing all kinds of other different um, uh, scholarly pursuits as well. This is really in many ways the birth of the modern university. Well, these students, you know, yeah, quite young. Everett is still in his teens at the time. Uh, are uh, are overwhelmed by this, and in particular, they are drawn into the interest that German scholarship has in all things Greek at the time. There's a political dimension to this because much as the German cities had been overwhelmed by the armies of the French and Napoleon in the 1790s and the early years of the 1800s. They looked to history and saw the ancient Greeks as their great model that were then subsumed by the power and the military might of Rome. And so the, the German devotion to ancient Greece was also a devotion to an ideal of autonomy and independence and, and the, a vision of the Republican form of government that was sort of naturally appealing to people like Everett and Tickner and the like. And so there was a kind of combined literary, cultural, artistic, political set of interests that was, was fascinating to these people. And so they explored it greatly. When they came back after their educations, they tried to transform Harvard based on these models, uh, introducing the study of foreign languages like German, French. Uh, another of these uh, travelers was um, the great uh, poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who becomes a professor of uh, Romance languages and the like. They also tried to transform the the lower school system, making the American public schools better, improving secondary education so that in college they could reach the heights that the German universities were approaching as well. And the, some of what they learned in their European visits as well was um, new visions of forms of charity and philanthropy and the like. They were awed by what doctors and reformers were doing, um, for instance, in teaching the blind and the deaf or in reforming schools there. So all of these different things are brought back from their European and German travels and instituted in, uh, in Boston. One of the leading figures in this was a man by the name of Samuel Ridley Howe, who was a doctor, a Harvard Medical School graduate, who, who toured Greece and fought in the Greek Revolution and, and saw... Uh, asylums and hospitals in uh, Germany and France, and on returning uh, becomes the founder of a school for the blind and deaf and has great success in teaching a blind and deaf child by the name of Laura Richards how to how to read and write despite her her disabilities and and so all of these things are aspects of ways in which they imagine they're going to use this new cultural knowledge to make Boston into a perfectly reformed city to to exceed the models that they had seen in Europe and so even if Boston can't be a leader in national politics, even if the rest of the country is heading in a different direction towards slavery and the like, they will create a, a kind of ideal city, the Athens of America. And yet they can't escape 
some of the kinds of conflicts that are emerging because of Boston's turn towards the textile industry and its greater and greater embrace of Southern slavery. And it comes back, ironically, through these German connections. Uh, one of the things that's emerging in Germany at the time that they're there are these really extremely radical German opponents of the kinds of totalitarian, not that's too strong a word, uh, um, autocratic governments that the Prussians and the uh, Austrians and the Russians and the like are, are, are pursuing at the time. And so some of these German Republicans, one of them, a man by the name of Karl Fallen, take on really radical positions in favor of self-government and republicanism and individual rights and the like. And in their radicalism, uh, Fallen actually conspires to assassinate a German playwright by the name of Kotzebue, who was a promoter of the autocratic position. Uh, and in the wake of that assassination, he has to flee uh, from his original province in Germany and, and by way of Switzerland ends up in the United States and is directed to go to Boston, where he, he finds that all of these positions that he had been arguing for in Germany are, no, are now the norm. This is the way that self-government in New England has been for, for centuries at this time. And, and quite extraordinarily, this, this sort of secretive uh, wanted assassin uh, quite quickly marries the daughter of one of the uh, cotton textile magnates. He, he marries uh, Eliza Cabot uh, of the famous Cabot family, um, is made a professor of German at Harvard, and, uh, and embraces, in many ways, the establishment status quo of Boston up to a point. And that point comes in his growing recognition of the degree to which Boston's prosperity and the prosperity of institutions like Harvard are increasingly grounded in this compromise with slavery that the textile mills have made. And so Carl Fallen and Eliza Cabot join William Lloyd Garrison's uh, uh, anti-slavery society and start speaking out against the slave system, for which he is immediately fired from his position at Harvard and scorned by the Harvard elite that he has only just joined. And so what you see here is the beginning in the 1830s already of the, of the internal disintegration of the ability of Boston's community to come to terms with their new economic relationship to the South. And so the, the kinds of um, cultural and moral stances that Bostonians had traditionally taken going all the way back to the 17th century have now been compromised by the new form of political economy in the city. How did the 1820 incorporation of a distinct city of Boston bifurcate notions of urban and rural to a certain extent, particularly in a city aiming to augment bridges, railways, dams, as well as land-making and defortification? What role did Irish Catholic immigrants, immigrant riots and crime play in this? And how did Jeremiads on native proprietors of a cultural tradition and the alien barbarians give voice to the dissolution of a city-state? Well, so uh, in 1822, after nearly two centuries of being governed by uh, the same form that every other town in Massachusetts was governed, that is, as a uh, popularly elected board of selectmen that forms a kind of committee to conduct business, Boston changes and now incorporates itself as a city 
that will elect a mayor and uh, each district in the city, the city is now broken up into 12 different districts, will elect representatives to uh, a governing body of the city. Now, you could argue that this was uh, a necessary move in a city that is now far larger than any other one in the Commonwealth. But the problem that it creates is that, as one person at the time says, instead of one whole city that votes together, it's now 12 separate districts, each of which are vying for the resources of the city, uh, not unlike the way in the U.S. Congress, what you have are different states vying for the resources of the whole. It's no longer going to operate around a consensus. And uh, so the new form of government that takes place means that increasingly, rather than seeing themselves as part of a, an organic whole, people are trying to sort of slough off the responsibilities and, of course, the costs of government from one part to another. One thing you see at this time after the incorporation of the city is the flight of wealthy people to the surrounding cities to avoid the kind of tax burden that the city is now uh, developing as it uh, tries to improve the kinds of services it has, the water, the transportation, and the like. And so within a very short period of time, half of the bankers in Boston now no longer live in Boston and have moved to other places. And so uh, with incorporation as a city in 1822, you also begin to see the rise of things that we think of as modern urban problems like um, uh, pollution uh, and, and, and the like. And, and so the city becomes much more conflicted internally. Now, one of the things that emerges in this time is also uh, ethnic conflict of various forms. Uh, and, and, and you see it in two terms. One is uh, with the growing number of Irish Catholic immigrants uh, to the city starting in the 1820s or so. Um, a lot of this comes, interestingly enough, not so much at the hands of uh, Anglo or, or sort of traditional Anglo-Saxon wasp Bostonians against the Catholics directly, but as a kind of weird outcome of the resentment of the lower WASP classes uh, in Boston against the abandonment of their former roles of the wealthier WASP form. So one of the, the, the classic events was this um, uh, the burning of the Ursuline convent in um, what's now Somerville. It was then Charlestown in Boston. And, and it's a curious story because although this was a convent and school run by Roman Catholics, the clientele of the school were actually, in many cases, the, the children of wealthy wasp Bostonians who had lost faith in the quality of the public schools in Boston and wanted to educate their children in this private environment, even while they themselves, by in many cases moving outside of the city, were abandoning their responsibility to pay the taxes that would have kept the public schools better. And so even though there's a lot of anti-Catholic rhetoric and language that the sort of lower class people, the, the brick workers and the firemen and the like, uh, threw out when they attack and burn down this, uh, this convent and its school, there, there's this kind of undertone of resentment at the way in which the city itself is no longer the integrated whole that it had once been. 
this doesn't stop people like uh, um, uh, Lyman Beecher, the the uh, Calvinist preacher and father of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Henry Ward Beecher and the like, from giving sort of vicious anti-Catholic lectures that that spur this on at the time. But what I'm trying to suggest is that the problem is more complicated than this. That even without the presence of increasing numbers of Irish Catholic immigrants, the the incorporation of the city, the flight of many of its richest and 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 sort of what had once been the leading population out of the city, have created internal problems that uh, that the Irish Catholic immigrants are only exacerbating. They're not really the cause of it as well, but yet it's another factor in feeding into the dissolution of the the city state that had had required a great deal of coherence uh, in, in order to to sustain uh, its vision of politics and political economy that it had once driven it. How and why did the founding of African churches, public segregation, female activism, as well as print cultures, denigrative and otherwise, all generate a black counterculture in the Boston public sphere? This is getting to the end of your book. Also, Why did phrenology, and this is more specific question, prove such an appealing social framework for Boston's liberal Unitarian leaders in the Boston Phrenological Society? In your response, if you can, please try to address how chattel slave transport debates and the uh, Fugitive Slave Act, the reauthorized Fugitive Slave Act, uh, spurred the violence that tore Boston apart. Right. Well, so um, one of the other developments that that really accelerates after the incorporation of the city into uh, separate uh, wards or districts in 1822 and the rise of this new form of government is the segregation of Boston's African-American population. Um, of course, during the period of slavery that extended until 1780, most African-Americans in Boston lived in the homes of their owners, right, of their masters, which meant that they were dispersed all over the city. But after emancipation, uh, which which happens in the 1780s, it's still largely the case that uh, African-Americans live all over town. There isn't just one concentrated black district. But increasingly in the 19th century, as uh, uh, bigotry and uh, hostility towards African-Americans in Boston from the white population grows, African-Americans begin to concentrate themselves, especially on the north slope of Beacon Hill, the area around Charles Street. Um, Housing is relatively cheap there, and it's close to a lot of workplaces. uh, in the West End, in the North End, where many African Americans work. And so there, in that neighborhood, you start to get uh, a number of different uh, African churches, the AME churches, the African Baptist Church, and the like. And with that growing segregation, the tendency towards bigotry and hostility towards African Americans in the in the Boston press gets worse and worse. So, for instance, when uh, quite naturally... The African-American population has its annual celebrations of the end of the slave trade in 1807. The the press at the time makes hideous and, and ruthless mockery of these events. Um, and and it's, uh, these are some of the ugliest moments in um, uh, Boston's history. At the same time, though, because Massachusetts is early to uh, abolish slavery, 
And because it does have a core of white anti-slavery folks who ally with the African-Americans, Boston does become a magnet for escaped slaves, for free blacks from the South who are moving North as the Southern system uh, becomes more and more oppressive as it becomes harder and harder to be a free black in the American South. And so uh, in the 1820s, in the hands of people like uh, David Walker, um, the rise of really sort of radical and activist uh, abolitionism emerges in the black community. And, and then, you know, white leaders like um, William Lloyd Garrison join with that and, and, and try to combine forces. And this too provides a really interesting uh, set of opportunities for women to become activists as well. The anti-slavery movement becomes a place where women like Eliza Cabot, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, can find a voice in public affairs where they hadn't before, although it requires them, in a sense, to be willing to renounce their ties to, you know, sort of upper class, respectable Boston life to, to embrace these sorts of things. And a, a great example of this uh, is what happens to Lydia Maria Child, who had had a successful career as an author, as the publisher of an important magazine. But when she, following David Walker's lead, produces a, a pamphlet in the 1830s, uh, supporting uh, African-American liberation in America and attacking slavery and the slave trade, she suddenly loses her privileges at the Boston Athenaeum and is scorned by Boston Literary Society and the like. So this segregationist move that happens in the early period uh, is this sort of odd double-edged sword. It allows opportunities for African-Americans, for women to become activists, but it also further enhances the sense of division within Boston's culture as a whole. Now, towards the end of the book, I talk about the, the weird development of this pseudoscience of phrenology as this last gasp moment in which the liberal Unitarian Boston elite hope that they can uh, heal some of these differences they see emerging in their society. Phrenology is this, you know, not entirely unplausible belief that there's a relationship between the condition of the brain and the physiology and a person's um, uh, behavior and, and actions in the world. The problem with phrenology is that they had no mechanism for understanding really how this worked, and they built up all kinds of hopes that if you uh, reformed your yourself physically in certain ways, if you improved your diet and your uh, exercise and all kinds of things, that you could actually change your physiology in ways that would make you a better person, and that if you did enough of this, you would make the world a better place. And so all of the reform movements I talked about earlier, like the ones that Samuel Elliot, or Samuel Gridley Howe used in his Institute for the Blind, and uh, they take up phrenological methods, thinking this is how we'll solve all of these problems, not just uh, you know blindness and deafness, but insanity and uh, alcoholism and... Um, uh, crime and all of these different things. And that if only we can, you know, put these reforms into place, then we'll solve the problems that, you know, the drunkenness and rioting and criminality and all will be fixed. Of course, it doesn't work, right? The, the, these methods don't make uh, a tremendous difference. They don't you know, hurt necessarily, but um, in a sense, the the craze for phrenology that hits in the 1830s and 40s, you know, the flame goes out quite briefly. 
But what it left in its wake was nonetheless a a set of beliefs that the, the conditions that different cultural groups, different races, different nationalities and had were were permanent and endemic to those kinds of people. So rather than actually resolving the kinds of problems, it made the prejudices that uh, um, shaped hostility to the Irish or hostility to African Americans worse and worse, right? And and all of these really explode in Boston in the 1850s, spurred on by another form of compromised national legislation that people like Daniel Webster uh, succumbed to, and that was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. It was part of the great compromise that resolved the, for the moment, the crisis that the Mexican War had brought on. And the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 essentially required any and every citizen to cooperate with and assist slave catchers in uh, capturing escaped slaves, even in places where slavery was illegal, and, and assisting their return to to bondage. And so Boston was was really struck by a series of crises over this in the 1850s, culminating in 1854 uh, with the case of Anthony Burns, uh, 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 an African-American man who escaped from slavery in Virginia, uh, was in Boston, was captured by a federal marshal, and uh, was you know scheduled to be brought back to Virginia when the various anti-slavery groups in Boston rose up in protest against him. I mean, not against him, against, against this law, uh, attacked the federal courthouse, tried to break in. A federal marshal was killed in the process. And after after series of tense days and arguments, finally, the United States Marines were sent in to line the streets of Boston and use cannons and bayonets and uh, cavalry uh, against the massed crowds of Boston to, to, to get Anthony Burns out. And once Burns was finally uh, and safely brought out of uh, Boston and returned to slavery in Virginia, Theodore Parker, the radical uh, uh, transcendentalist minister and abolitionist, wrote a a despairing response saying that, yes, uh, there was a Boston once. Boston had once been a proud and independent and autonomous place, but now it was nothing more than a suburb of Alexandria, Virginia, and that all Bostonians were now clearly under the thumb of the slave aristocracy of Virginia. Um, and, and in many ways, the book comes to an end at that point with the sense that, that uh, both in terms of its internal disintegration and in terms of the power of the United States over uh, Boston because of the way its economy was now compromised and, and uh, connected to the rest of the, of the the slave South, the the autonomy that Boston had uh, founded in the 17th century and clung on to ever since was now gone. Well, thank you for being on the show today, uh, Professor Peterson. I have one final question. Uh, what's up for you next? Um, are you? I know this is a pretty prodigious uh, research endeavor. Are you uh, taking a vacation? Are you working on, I'm sure you're working on other projects. What's up for you next? No vacation, uh, <laughs> but... But as a change of pace, a very short book. I'm writing a, a, a 40,000 word book uh, for Princeton University Press called The Long Crisis of the Constitution. And it's uh, meant for a general audience and it's to assess uh, what was the, the purpose of the United States Constitution when it was produced in the 1780s, uh, how that purpose was 
for better or worse, fulfilled in the 19th century, and finally how ever since the 1890s, the uh, a long, slow crisis in the governance under the Constitution has been building, and, and we are now in full crisis today. That's where I'm going next. Well, we hope you remember the New Books Network for that forthcoming uh, book. I certainly will. Thanks very much, Ryan. I appreciate it. All right. So the book is The City-State of Boston by uh, Professor Mark Peterson, uh, The Rise and Fall of Atlantic Power, 1630-1865. This is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Professor Peterson, the New Books Network's History Channel. Please tune in next time.